Hello, I'm Anne Mossop, Sydney Writers' Festival Artistic Director. We hope you enjoy this episode from our podcast program. Hello everyone and welcome to Sydney Writers' Festival 2023. My name is Jennifer Wong and I'm delighted to welcome you all today here to Home Comforts. To begin, I would like to acknowledge that we're meeting today on the land of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation and pay my respects to elders past and present. For now, please join me in welcoming these amazing guests. Please let me introduce them to you. Uh, To my left here is Asma Khan, an award-winning chef, best-selling cookbook author, and the owner of London's famous Darjeeling Express restaurant. Asma is the first British chef to be profiled in Netflix Emmy-nominated Chef's Table, which featured her all-female kitchen and commitment to social change. To Asma's left is Rasheen Call. Rasheen is head chef at Melbourne's Etta restaurant, where she cooks a menu as culturally diverse as she is. She's the co-author with Joanna Hu of Chinese-ish, a cookbook which reflects the diversity of their Asian heritage. Then we have Takane Ayubi, an Afghan-born writer, restaurateur, and lifelong fellow of the Oxford University-based Atlantic Fellowship, which seeks to rewrite global social inequities. She's the author of the much-loved Perwana, Recipes and Stories from an Afghan Kitchen. And finally, over there, so far away from me, but so close to my heart, is Alice Zaslavsky, <laughs> the Arbier Award-winning author of the international bestseller In Praise of Veg. Her latest book is A Cooking Confidence Unlocker and is called The Joy of Better Cooking. Please give them a very warm round of applause. It's so cosy to be here with you today with, I'm sure, a lot of home cooks yourselves and everyone loves comfort food. So I'm going to open today by asking the lovely panel, when's the last time that you made a meal that for you defines comfort food? What did you make and what were you seeking comfort from? It has to be paratha and masala omelette. And I made that when I realised lockdown had been called. And I remember that really well because it was like the middle of the night. And everything that I'd worked for, that I had built the business up, uh, I realized now we were all at peril, not just me, but my entire kitchen team and all their families in India, uh, Bangladesh, Pakistan, and Nepal, who now who needed their money, we were all at peril. But I ate that paratha and, and I was feeling that I will find a solution. I need to find a way forward. So despite the enormity of what was happening, I do remember that meal and trying to feel that somehow we were going to make it through. And we did. That is quite a momentous meal to call back on now sitting here, um, you know, um, so many months after things have basically returned, I'm guessing, to normal. Would that be right? Yes, I'm lucky. Thank God for the Americans. (laughs) They've turned up in numbers. You don't hear that that often. (laughs) (laughs) They've turned up in big numbers. Uh, our economy is in big trouble uh, in the UK, but we're, we're, because I, I guess because of Chef's Table, I do have a kind of bigger international audience, and I'm very grateful for that. Mm. So that's why, for me, it is normal, but the restaurant scene in London is not normal. Yeah. Mm. We can talk about that a little bit more, but for now I'd love to hear from Rasheen about uh, a comfort food, that uh, a meal that you've had recently that you would define as comfort food. 
Um, funnily enough, I was actually going to talk about a lockdown meal as well when I moved um, back home to my parents' house. Um, and it was also just after they had called for lockdown. And I tend not to cook at my parents' house because they're such prolific cooks themselves. Um, and I'm usually just in the way in the kitchen. But um, for the first time, I cooked with my dad and we were making a Kashmiri vegetarian meal. Um, and he let me do things. And it was just really nice because, you know, I'd never had that experience cooking alongside my dad before. Um, and it was, you know, it was such simple food, but it was so special because it was such a homecoming. Um, but it was such a, um, it almost like we progressed to be like, all right, now we're about to go through a really difficult time, but just eat this, you know, like rice and hark and um, just really simple food. And it was just really, um, yeah, really heartwarming. Yeah, that's wonderful. Takane, what about you? Um, well, I just want to start by also acknowledging country and paying my respects to Gadigal elders, past, present and emerging. Um, and to also say how thrilled I am to be on a panel with these women who I admire so much. But that fangirling out the way, um, I guess for me, my relationship to food is very much about home and comfort. So as a refugee, my family arrived to um, Australia from Afghanistan when my sisters and I were all under the age of nine, so very small, very little tangible memory of experiences um, of Afghanistan that were directly ours. So food kind of provided this tether, this bridge to our own identity that we wouldn't have had otherwise. Um, so I've got a bit of a kind of macro example of um, that meal. When Afghanistan collapsed to the Taliban in 2021, it was a really devastating time for Afghan people the world over. Obviously the people within Afghanistan the most, but for diaspora all around the world. And my family's instinct was, what can we do? You know, we're so far away, um, but we need to do something. And we decided we would do a fundraiser, invite our community in and use the power of food as some form of healing and connection. And so we, it literally started with a phone call between me and my dad saying, we need to do something. We should um, get everyone together, make some food and see what we can, what funds we can raise just to help people that were just suffering so much at that time. And it turned into an enormous fundraiser um, we sold 700 tickets in the space of three or four hours. And we were so kind of thrilled by that. There was like a tiny moment of healing, like a panacea amidst that grief. And then we had to start cooking, right, for 700 people. And it was just the most incredible experience. Our community came in and supported us. Everyone showed up. Um, and we, as a family, got to do what we loved the most, which was cook and feed people and invite people into a story of Afghanistan beyond war, beyond violence, beyond our unworthiness and incapability. And we did it with the beauty and power of food. Um, and it was a real comfort and it was a real healing for everyone in that space. Mm. What were some of the dishes in particular that were meaningful to So we to made Kabuli Palau, which is um, an national dish of Afghanistan. We are a rice culture. Rice sits at the centre of all our food. So it's a beautiful long grain rice with um, caramelised carrots, sultanas and nuts on top. We made a murakh kebab, like a chicken with naan and chutney on the side. Um, and the banjan borani, which is an eggplant, a braised eggplant dish that if any of you have um, 
had at Parwana, like in Adelaide, it's just become <laughs> a signature dish. People there love it. Um, and, you know, these are all flavours and dishes and um, that, that are meant to feel, feel comforting, right? That is the essence of Afghan food. It's meant to invite people in. There's no exclusivity around it. And you have it with other people. You make it with other people. So there's this collectivity, there's this comfort around identity and being with loved ones and breaking bread and eating with loved ones that sits at the centre of um, Afghan cuisine and uh, rituals and culture surrounding it. Mm, wonderful. Alice, what about for you? When was the last time you had a meal, that you made a meal that felt like comfort food? I have to say all of our cultures are so uh, it relates so much to the way that I was raised as well. You know, I, I grew up in Georgia uh, from, you know, Ashkenazi Jewish heritage, the kind of culture that, that says, you know, you come in, they say, have you eaten? <laughs> just, the nods tell me is exactly the same as, as each. Uh, but my, mine is a micro example and it's from last week. I've, I've just been travelling internationally and the thing that I miss so much when I travel, you would think that it's such a luxury, you're eating out all the time, but actually... That kind of food is not comforting food and it's not nourishing food. And some of you were uh, in the audience for your Tam Otolenghi's show in Sydney earlier in the year and the, 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 the joy that I had was that your Tam said, hey, if you ever get to Europe, let me know because I've got this place in Northern Ireland, you can have it for yourself and just stay. So last week I was, that was, uh, I went into, I, I debated um, whether to drop that name, but it gives you context, right? So it's like, as far as kitchens go, it was a beautiful kitchen to cook in. And we went to this little shop and bought um, a chicken and vegetables. And my four-year-old daughter and my husband were there with me and I cooked a meal for my family. And we sat down and we ate together on an international trip that was the ultimate, that for me was one of the most memorable events of, of the whole tour. So, you know, home comforts don't have to be big. It's amazing when they are. They don't have to always be um, big macro events. They can be those micro moments with your family. And you've chosen to be here over Helen Garner. So I think <laughs> clearly you all agree. Yeah. <laughs> When it comes to um, home cooking, um, there is something that's very different to eating when you're on the road outside, right? And I wonder in all of your work, how the work that you do professionally is different or similar to the cooking that you do at home. Do you try to capture the home spirit very much in the work that you do in your kitchens? For me, yes, absolutely. The average age of the person cooking in my restaurant kitchen is 55. I have between nine and 12 women cooking every day. They have never cooked in a professional kitchen or any kind of proper kind of commercial uh, organization before. Uh, we are all home cooks and I have three grandmothers in, in, my, in my kitchen. So for us, there's no other context. Many of these women have never even been to a restaurant. Uh, except for the local eatery. So it's, it's very much uh, the food that they recognize that they're comfortable making, they're comfortable serving. And we don't try to hide our food because there's a deep insecurity, I feel, with South Asian food. And I said this before that, you know, my skin is brown, my food is brown. 
I do not need to hide it with edible flour and deconstructing it to make it look pretty. Uh, so, <laughs> unlike all other restaurants that you would go, that's considered fine dining in in uh, in England, uh, our food comes as as if it was at home. Uh, we don't waste money on garnish. Uh, also, in Calcutta, you can't get much stuff. Everything is wilting and dying in the heat. So we don't have greens and stuff like that and, you know, rocket leaves and microherbs, heaven forbid. So we don't... <laughs> yeah, so it's... Uh, yeah, we get it as it is. Uh, you get caramelized onions if you're lucky. You get a slice of lemon and a slice <laughs> of onion on top of stuff. But yeah, it's pretty much as you would at home. Completely untarnished by fake stuff. Is that what you think home cooking means, untarnished by fake stuff? Yes. Yeah. 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 I mean, I don't know. Maybe some of you do. But garnish yeah. at home for yourself. Garnish. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't have a... I know I'm looking like I'm, I'm taking huge pot shots at garnishing. No, I'm not. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just... It's, it's, you can make it look pretty for yourself. And I think that's absolutely fine. And our restaurant, we serve our food. It looks very pretty. We have lots of people putting posts up on Instagram. It does look very good. But anyone who's a home cook in any part of South Asia will see it and not think it's any way abnormal or different. This is how we eat. We don't make our food deliberately look boring. It's just that we don't tweak stuff to make it look foreign and fancy. Mm. It must be so meaningful for people to go to your restaurant and feel a sense of home out so far away from home sometimes. That is the reason why I have Darjeeling Express. It is, it is the way that people go home. They don't need to be South Asian. What they taste in our food is patience. We have just like one chicken, one of every item. We don't batch cook. They can see the women making the parathas. They can watch the women making all the prawn and paneer dishes are made as you order them. It's an open kitchen. You can watch your food being made. Nothing. I mean, we have a microwave. We try to make popcorn in it. We have burnt it so many times. Throw on the bloody microwave. Because, yeah, you get these packets, you can put them, and they're supposed to be, I don't know, we just can't work it out. But it's, uh, it's, it is the rhythm and the space and the patience and the love and the pride and the honor that comes from cooking. From the women in their graves, we salam to them. We salute them because we are celebrating the unloved, the unwanted, the unpaid. That's the home cook. And we are the only uh, Indian restaurant with an all-female kitchen in the world. They don't even have one in India because people are used to taking our roti for free. And the kitchen doors in a restaurant are not open to us. But when everyone comes back home, from Afghanistan to Sri Lanka, every home has a matriarch or a woman cooking. In our culture, in the East and in the West, you have men, predominantly men, cooking food, but it's not in my name. It is so powerful. I know in your book you speak of the four mothers, the four mothers that you that you that you honour when you when you're cooking. Um, it's very powerful. Yeah, Rasheen, what's it like for you? This idea of um, bringing the home into into your work. Well, this is really awkward because I love garnish. <laughs> <laughs> My apologies. <laughs> I mean, it's just a, I mean, it's pretty funny, but um, 
<laughs> but not at home. Um, and the yeah, food. Yeah, we do it at home. Yeah, yeah. who can't at home? Yeah, you well, eat the coriander f- like that. Yeah, <laughs> you don't put it it's always thing. the one sprig. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> add something extra. But um, no, in the restaurant, we've got a gigantic wood fire, so I definitely don't. I'm not really able to really communicate like home style cooking at Etta, but it's in its flavors, in its essence, every dish on that menu, even though it looks like quite recognizable Melbourne dining. You know, it's sharing style, it's got, we've got oysters, we've got, you know, like large size proteins. It's a very recognizable style of dining. Um, Every dish will always hark back to a very specific flavor memory that I have. It could be something as specific as one sauce that I had one time when I was four years old in this one restaurant somewhere far away. And it'll be a reference point that only I know, but it's, every dish is very, it's, it's home to me, but not necessarily to other people. Um, but, you know, it's, it's just, it's a way that I reconcile all of my different cultures because, you know, at home, it's, there's a lot of, even though my parents are of mixed heritage, um, the food they cook is very pure to them. And you very rarely mix them together because, you know, dad's cooking, mom's cooking, or I'm cooking something very simple. Um, but in the restaurant, it's an amalgamation of all of my cultures and also of a sense of place of being in Melbourne, being on Ligon Street, which has, you know, really strong Italian and Middle Eastern communities. And, you know, it's, it's very much its own home, that restaurant. And in, I'm such a, you know, integral like personality in there. So it's very much entirely separate, but very much home to me. Mm. Takani, so Pawan has been going since 2009. Mm-hmm. How have you guys managed to keep the essence of home in the cooking that you do? I think Pawan is just an extension of our home and that's how it came to be. It didn't come to be through chef's training. It didn't come to be through even knowing we would have a restaurant. It came to be because my mum is an amazing cook and she carried with her this sense of home to this shore far away when we didn't have any other concept of home that we brought with us. So food was an edible kind of familiarity and connection to that sense of home that was lost. And it really did start from my sisters and I, my mom, other people in our diaspora community gathering around our dining room tables, folding dumplings together, making bolani stuffed flatbreads together. You know, that communality, that, that sense of purpose and belonging that you create and that happens around food when you have little else. And for my mother, she had the wherewithal and the depth to understand that Afghan food was a proxy for Afghan culture and Afghan identity, and that after decades of interference, meddling, violence, and war, that that identity was at risk of being lost. And what a way to share um, something of her own identity and our, you know, what's running through our blood to share that with people in our new home, to allow it to continue. And really, so it started with the home and mum cooking for like different like kind of little catering jobs here and there within um, within the community. And then that branched out outside of the community. And then people all of a sudden were like, wow, we've never had these flavours. They sound, they taste so familiar. Like we see ourselves in these flavours, but it's put together a bit differently, <laughs> you know? And that's what Afghan food is because of where it sits geographically at this kind of central point um, in the geography of our planet where 
different cultures and civilizations traded, stayed, merged, melded. So there's this essence of familiarity in it that people see themselves in the food. And my mum knew that this is what Afghan food symbolized. So she taught us as her children and said, it's a treasure, I'm passing it on to you. And by extension, that treasure from within our home then got to be shared with more people in our community in Adelaide. And then through the gift and the opportunity of being able to write the cookbook that then could be shared with even more people globally to understand just how important what happens in the home, what happens with your family and your loved ones, how important that is for um, Afghan identity and, and being able to share that even more broadly, to give people an in to a side of Afghanistan that they might never have access to otherwise. So everything about Parwana is about not forgetting that that's where we've come from and not needing, not feeling the need to abandon that or to change it so that we become more palatable to a Eurocentric lens. And we really haven't tried in any way to stray from the core of what Afghan cooking and cuisine is. And at its core, it is just an invitation for everybody. And um, I think that's kind of what we try to, to share at the restaurant. My mum still does the cooking, you know, and my family is there with her, my brother-in-law, my sisters, myself. You know, so it really has been a place that has helped us um, kind of grow and change ourselves as our life story has changed too. Mm. <laughs> yeah. You write about it beautifully in Pawana. You write on lands far from our ancestral home, the profundity of remembering through food would bind us. Um, I think that's something that we can all really resonate with. And I wonder for you, Alice, what that's like in terms of cooking food um, from a culture, from a country that you are far away from. Sure. Um, <clears throat> well, I think, number one, I've had the privilege of eating at each of these restaurants. And I have to tell you, when you do make it to, to London, to Melbourne, to Adelaide, um, all of the things that they've just said just come through the food in every single dish. The difference for me is I'm not a chef um, a cook. And the, the way that you taste my food is through my recipes. And the way that I bring you into my kitchen is through my words and through the stories that I tell. And my story, um, my food is one of uh, rushed, hurriedly packed suitcases. You know, I think actually if, if I had to think, so I'm so jet lagged, so I might cry. Um, so <laughs> <laughs> um, if I had to think about one dish that really encapsulates that, it's uh, the zrazi, the, the potato and mushroom zrazi in, with harissa satsabeli in, uh, in praise of veg. So zrazi are a Lithuanian dish that kind of travelled across Eastern Europe um, in the hurriedly packed suitcases of Jews as they fled oppression. Uh, and I mixed it, obviously, with mushrooms, which is extremely inauthentic. Uh, and equally inauthentic is the harissa satsibeli. Satsibeli is a Georgian sauce. And harissa, again, um, you know, if you think about the Moroccan um, influence and North African influence of, of how harissa ended up where it is, you know, that dish uh, in the intro, those lines didn't actually make it into the intro of that recipe because it didn't feel at that time that I was ready to tell that story, you know. And the, the longer that I do this, the closer I get to the truth of what I want to say. And what I want to say is that every time that you 
taste dishes from cultures of people who are from far away. There is a longing. Um, you know, in, in Russian it's called daska. You know, it's like a, um, like a grieving for something that you don't necessarily know what it is, but it's because when you do go back to the place, the air, the ground, it's in our DNA. And I remember returning to Georgia in 2014, you know, when we left, we left um, in the kind of the, the, the hub, uh, hullabaloo of Bidistroika. So, you know, 91, three days after we left, the airstrip was bombed. So we really, you know, left very hurriedly um, and didn't come back for 25 years or close to 25 years, including my parents. So you can imagine it, it took them a very long time to reckon with what had happened and whether they were ready to come back. But I remember landing in Tbilisi and putting my feet on the ground and still feeling like home. And the fact that I can bring you home with me and bring you to Tbilisi with my recipes and do the same with these sort of heirloom recipes of my, of my four, four mothers uh, is such a privilege to do. And I have to admit, you know, living in, in Melbourne and growing up in Australia, my kitchen, the stuff that I cook for my family isn't necessarily Georgian because I leave that to my mum, you know, and to my dad. Like, that's not really the food that I cook. It's just such a mishmash. Uh, but that, again, is the, the, the gift that we have in this country, that we have access to all of these different ingredients and all of these different cultures. And we're seeing it coming through in cookbooks. And I think people are yearning for that authenticity now. And we're seeing it in the cookbooks that people are reaching for. And we're seeing that the cookbooks that cut through are the ones that are ready to tell their stories. Thank you, Alice. You share that so beautifully. Thank you so much. I think I am not jet lagged, but I may also cry. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the baby did it for me, so thank you. <laughs> I want to talk about the idea of home food versus restaurant food. Um, Asma, in your book, you write about um, a dish called kima, well, a, a, a thing called kima, which is which is mincemeat, is that right? Yes. And you say that um, this is a family dish not considered sophisticated enough to serve guests. Um, it looks delicious. I would happily be a guest in your kitchen if you were making this. What is this distinction, you, do you think, between the food that is just for us and food that is for for other people? Do you, do you make that distinction in, in, in your restaurant? I don't make that distinction in my restaurant. We, uh, in my previous restaurant, we've, my in the previous place in Covent Garden, we were serving Kima in this great two-listed building, extremely sophisticated setup. We served Kima, which is the most simple of food. It's very, the reason why we would not give it to guests is because it looks cheap. It's, it's mince meat, which is very efficient when you do not have a lot of money it allows you to give a tablespoon of meat to each, each member on that table. Whereas that is not the case. If you cut up a chicken, max you can get eight pieces. And if you have more than eight people on your table, you're in trouble. And you can or may not afford two to, to chickens. So I understand where this thing about kima comes from. It's this embarrassment that it is meat, but it is meat in, which has been minced up and then it can easily be portioned out. I love to have kima with ketchup. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, to my mother's great horror, uh, and I was uh, was very silent when I saw my sons who've never heard the story eating kima with ketchup. They eat ketchup with everything, but and I thought, okay, fine. So it's moved through the bloodline. Uh, <laughs> but we we are very. Uh, there is this complete paranoia in India about how you look when you serve food, 
And that is why we have food that you serve to guests, which is to impress. It's expensive, it is big, it is, you know, expensive cuts of meat, but also it's the size of prawn. I have a recipe in Ammu, which is the Golda Chingri, which is a, you know, a prawn after it's cooked this size. And it's always made when the son-in-law comes home. <laughs> That's it. I mean, it is not made any other time. It's an absolutely fabulous dish. But when you come from a huge clan like I do, I mean, every third week someone's getting married. So lots of son-in-laws around. So, you know, then we, I got to eat that a lot. It's a simple recipe. It's beautiful. And so it, it really is food to impress and then food to heat and then everyday food. Uh, even if you are not vegetarian, you have one, one meat dish. And if on the table, if at all. And most people don't know this. You know, all this meat-free Monday that the West is harping on about. <laughs> in Bengal and in whole of India, there used to be a meat-free day. We did this long before. It's a bit like India discovering yoga after Madonna started doing it. <laughs> and uh, yeah, so we are, we are very shallow. When, when someone who's white and cool does it, we all think, oh yeah, yeah, this is really good. But it's, uh, we never even talked about sustainability. We don't need to, because for us, it's part of our everyday life. But we had a meat-free day. So home food has always been very simple. Uh, and also, logically, Calcutta is like 40 degrees, 100% humidity. It's like a sauna. Your food doesn't last. Mm. And a lot of people tell me, oh, how nice your dish is vegan or how nice your, you know, you, you don't have dairy. We don't have cows because there's, like, <laughs> it's, there's, there's not enough grass. It's, it's a delta. And we don't use milk because everything will curdle. By the time the third sleepy child turns up on the table, the food has gone off. If you add, and if you add so much ghee and butter as they do in restaurants in the West to my shoe, it would taste nice. It's, uh, honestly, we, we don't eat. It's a hot country. So when people say Indian food is rich, you think, whoa, what kind of food did you eat? It's not like that. So keema is just simple, straightforward food. It's nourishing, it's healing. We are a hot country. You can't digest this. You won't get up and go back to work if you eat lunch like this. People just don't get us when it comes to our food. So yeah, so keema, I, in, so that's what I did in Ammu. I've really just really shared home food. There are dishes you'll not see in a restaurant. Also because the men in the restaurant may not know how to make it. But uh, <laughs> it's, it's just, I just feel that you know, it's not celebrated enough. And this is really what our cuisine is. Our cuisine is not some ponzi chicken tikka masala that they're selling in restaurants. That's not our food. Yeah. <laughs> I love that. Sorry for giving again a go at all the chefs who cook in restaurants. I respect them a lot, and they're all my friends. Can I please say that? Rasheen, what is it like for you to to hear that? You know, you know, this is this is uh, this is not my food. Did you ever do you ever go to a restaurant and go, this is not my food? Well, as I mean, someone who wrote a book called Chinese Ish. Well, that's the thing is, like, I can't really. Someone has seated us very very strategically. I know. I'm like, I'm just that. I'm, always, I'm just sitting there listening. I'm like, oh. No, so but, you haven't yeah. all come to hear the same thing, right? Yes, that's yeah. true. Yes, we'll just contradict ourselves just yeah. down the line. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> but um, yeah, like it's that's the thing. Like I don't really have um, ownership over any particular cuisine, but there are, um, especially like with my cookbook, with the ish in the Chinese ish, um, the ish is supposed to encapsulate all the other cultures that you know are a really, really important part of who I am. And 
you know, the, that's the really beautiful thing about the, there's a style of cooking that's coming out in restaurants now. Um, and, you know, as someone who works in like the more like, you know, not the home style restaurant, like more like a, you know, like fancy, fancy kind. Um, it's, there's a really cool movement of young chefs and you sort of saw it first in New York, but it's fusion in the hands of people of that culture. Um, and so once upon a time, fusion always meant, you know, your typical white male chef just destroying a, an Asian cuisine, for example, yeah. like, oh, I just love a bit of tataki, and then boom, it's on a French restaurant menu. And, you know, it really destroyed that word and damaged it for the future. But the word fusion itself is, you know, it's a word in itself. And, you know, now you see this whole an era now of young chefs who are of, you know, mixed race cultures, who are often displaced from their home culture, who are now trying to figure out where they sit in this landscape of, you know, varied cuisines and flavors and produce. And so, you know, now I think I'm also part of that, that group of chefs who's trying to figure out what their own cuisine is, because it is so many things. And it is so special to be part of that conversation and to see where we're all going with flavor, really. And it's, uh, yeah, it's pretty, it's pretty cool. Mm. Hmm. So we know, of course, that food uh, is is not static, that it does change. And Takana, you had this experience when you went to Afghanistan and mm. learned about the street food when mm. you were there in Pawana. You write about how um, that had, that changed your idea of what Afghanistan food was. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, sure. So the first time that... Um, I had a chance to go back to Afghanistan was in 2012. So I went back with um, my family um, after fleeing Afghanistan um, as a baby with like no memory of it from then. And when Alice talked about putting her feet on Georgian soil, um, I had a really similar experience of literally retracing my family's fleeing out of Afghanistan on foot across the border into Pakistan and into a camp using that same entrance through the Khyber Pass, going back into Afghanistan. And mind you, none of this really hitting me until years later when I'm reflecting on all of it and writing the book. And going into Afghanistan as an adult and not in my young-ish 20s, um, not really having a full kind of understanding of just what it would mean to return home, to step on Afghan soil, um, bursting into tears by this unexpected embrace of this being the land that I was born on, um, realising for the first time just how much I didn't know about myself. And um, I'm not jet-lagged either, but teary. <laughs> it's a short flight from Adelaide. But... Um, <laughs> You know, there's just this profound impact of being on land that I guess you lose when you're far from land and is maybe, in a sense, what you're trying to get back with your connection to food. But when we were in Afghanistan, my sisters and I, um, and, you know, it was still a time of occupation, so the US and NATO forces were there, so it's, it's unstable and we had to travel minimally and carefully and that kind of thing. But driving through the countryside um, into mountain villages, like where people are making istalaf pottery with this beautiful hue of blue-green dye that on, only the people in that village know how to make and how to make this prop, um, 
this um, pottery with it and eating off plates like that and that kind of thing, you know. We just, I had this profound awakening in a sense that food is was of the land and we stayed in this um, place in Darinur where we had this meal literally outside under the stars. Um, everything was made from the produce there, the farm there, the wheat ground there, that kind of thing. And it was one of the most memorable food experiences of my life. And I think that was the beginning of an awakening of asking deeper questions around food and identity. Um, and you would drive through these um, roads and just see these fluorescent kind of dimly lit like little bakeries that would be making like naan bread fresh from the tandoor or like little bakeries, um, shidney, we call them shidney pas, like just making sweets and that kind of thing. And we came back to Australia, my sisters and I, and we thought, you know, we can create something around Afghan food that takes it to that next, the next chapter of our story as kind of living across worlds. And so we decided to incorporate this street food culture into a little lunch spot that we had opened called Kuchi Deli Prawana. And so it was kind of retaining the same essence of Afghan cuisine and ingredients um, and recipes, but also um, making it a bit kitsch and reflecting the fluoro, the bright colours, the lights, that kind of thing, the aesthetics that very much form a part of um, Afghan culture and food culture as well. Uh, so, yeah, that was the really kind of seeing it firsthand there created a different way of understanding how we could share it here too. Mm. Alice, is there a food that is very much a home food for you <laughs> that has yet to grace your uh, your books? I've got to say too, the stitch-up is real. <laughs> <laughs> Every time. I'm, I'm the levity of the panel, I suppose. Um, so, <laughs> so if I had to think about one food but, uh, that is my comfort food, it is toasted sunflower seeds. My publisher is in the audience and her eyebrows just went. <laughs> That's not going to turn up in a cookbook. But that to me is the most comforting thing that I can possibly do. Um, you know, in, in Israel, uh, they're called garinim in Hebrew. Uh, you see the shells of the sunflower seeds on the ground. In, in Georgia, you know, the men would sit out the front of somewhere and just be like, in fact, when I get really uh, anxious, if I've got a deadline, for example, I will develop calluses on my fingertips from how many sunflower seeds I crush. It's because my grandfather taught me how to pick the right sunflower seeds, how to put them in the pan, how to toast them, how to wait for the smell to change. It smells like peanut butter on toast and that's the way that it tastes. And so it is such a simple, it's not a recipe, it's not a dish. I think it's a book. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, again, you know, I don't think we need to overcomplicate this. Like whatever it is that brings you joy, and for me it's sunflower seeds and I, and I will eat them till, uh, you know, if, I actually can't have them in the house sometimes. How do you choose the right one? What's the right sunflower seed? <laughs> Well, actually, there's a brand. So there's a, it's called Babushkin Semishki. Like there's, a, there's an old granny on the front. If you go to any sort of Eastern European deli, 
uh, continental deli in Bondi. Um, Lisa, you know, where would they go? What suburb? Ruskies. Ruskies, yeah, go to Ruskies. Uh, it's a red packet uh, with, a, with a babushka on the front, like a grandma on the front. <laughs> and uh, when... I'm trying to decide if this is insensitive. No, no, it's okay. So when... <laughs> now you have to say it. <laughs> but when the conflict in Ukraine started, um, obviously the supply chain of everything changed. And I remember there were just months on end where you couldn't find these, you know, semichki. And I'd be coming in every week. And I think actually what I noticed as well is how many more people were returning to these delis um, because that was the food that we were all craving. So, again, you know, it, it, every there's so much attachment to food, and it, and then the olfactory system, you know, the the um, hippocampus, which is responsible for retaining memory, is like almost next to, adjacent to our olfactory processing. So, of course, that aroma of those toasted sunflower seeds is directly enmeshed in my memories of my grandfather. Um, and, you know, I'm willing to put my body on the line <laughs> to retrace and, and find, you know, rediscover those memories again. I mm. love that. You speak about joy, Alice, and I think we don't talk about joy enough, not only in food, but in general, the idea of joy. I'd love to ask all of you what is uh, the food that gives you the most joy when it's someone else preparing something for you? What is something that you're not making for yourself, but someone is making for you or has made for you before that just fills you with joy? I, I absolutely love biryani, uh, especially our wedding biryani. I mean, the unfortunate bit is if you deal with toxic aunts who say how fat you are, you don't paint your nails, you know, why don't you have more children? All of this, I have to just kind of ignore them. Uh, why are you still so dark when you live in London? Uh, they, they ask me those questions. But then the wedding biryani, that's made by professional wedding cooks who do it. It's a class act. I mean, when they open that lid, that biryani is just so good. And I'm one of those people, I don't care what I'm wearing because, of course, you're wearing lots of fancy clothes, lots of jewelry. <laughs> I do, I'm very, very ungrateful. I just take off all my jewelry, <laughs> everything. I put it on the side because I just want to <laughs> lean in. And when the jewelry is leaning you back, you can't eat. So, yeah, I, this, I, I take it very seriously. I embarrass everyone on the table. Because <laughs> my mother kid, my sister, my mother says, you know, if she could, she'd take off her dress. <laughs> because, yeah, so they're all ashamed of me. But, yeah, I, biryani that's made in our weddings, in my family weddings, yep. is the best I've ever had. Mm. That's, uh, I dream of it. I love it. Can your mm -hmm. next book be How to Eat Biryani? <laughs> <laughs> and just like on. pictures of all the things uh. you need to do in order to prepare yourself. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> what gives you guys joy when it, comes to, when it comes to food that someone else has made for you? Just the fact that if anybody cooks for me at all, because I spend all of my time, like, mm. you know, like, you know, 80 hours a week cooking for other people, just the act of somebody cooking for me, no matter what, so somebody mm. makes me a piece of toast. Like, it's, <laughs> it's, it's such a, it's so pure. Yeah. And you're like, thank you. Like, you know, like, thank you. It's, yeah, just anyone cooking for me at all is, mm. I'm so grateful, mm. really, yeah. We were talking before, Rasheen, about, um, about fruit and the significance of yes. preparing fruit for other people. Can yeah. you tell me what makes you happy when you get home from work after, <laughs> after a long night? Yes, I'm still, I'm still at my parents' house. haven't left yet. But um, I went away and I came back. But um, <laughs> it's because I do, I do work quite late nights. And um, 
often I'll come home from work about say like one in the morning and I'll look in the fridge and there's always a little bowl of cut fruit that my dad has oh, prepared. That's um, so sweet. And it's it's it'll always be it'll it's always seasonal. So right now is persimmon, mm. <laughs> but it's um, I've never taken a bite of a whole fruit in my house ever. Just and it's so Asian. <laughs> I know. <laughs> I know. This, is, this is a universal Asian kid thing. Well, it's it's such a pure expression of love. You know, like it's not often said in Asian households as well. Like the words never often leave your parents' mouth, but yeah. then it's in actions like cutting fruit, knowing that, you know, I'd be coming home from a really rough day sometimes and just eating like little slices of apple. It's just, it's, you know, it, it's everything, you know, it's mm-hmm. really, you know, you know that there's so much love and care has been taken and just, you know, peeling apples for you or like cutting pears. Yeah, it's really, mm, yeah. 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 yeah, you heard it here first. Rasheen Cole has never bitten into a whole apple. <laughs> um. <laughs> I'll go do it now. Mm. A market. What about for you guys? Joy, Alice, we've heard from you about Joy. Mm. Takane. Um, yeah, like Rasheen says, like just someone cooking for me. That's great. I think what it also <laughs> does is you actually approach the meal with more of an appetite. Because if you're cooking for yourself, you're picking yeah. at things and, you know, by the time it's ready, you know how much you've touched it and you're like, do I even want to eat it? And, you know, your, your appetite is bored just of it. different. You're bored of it. You've, you've had the sensory experience of inhaling it, tasting it, that kind of thing, to make sure it's good for other people. But when someone does it for me, like my husband cooks for me, and it's beautiful, you know, because he puts love and care into um, what he's cooking. And he makes the best chicken and everybody loves his chicken and the way he does these potatoes and people go mad for his potatoes. <laughs> and, you know, I love that he will cook that and I haven't, had, I haven't been the one to be, like, tasting it and losing my appetite in the lead-up to the meal. So it just tastes extra good when you sit down. Mm. <laughs> this makes me think of um, what you wrote, Asma, in your book about how um, ingredients you can always buy again, but what someone is giving you when they're cooking for you is their time, yeah. mm, which is yeah. the most precious thing, isn't it? Their time and their patience. Yeah, and that's you could never get that back. And valuing the hands that cook we have forgotten, we have all become consumers of food. Mm. So what she's expressing, this thing of the simplicity that someone took the trouble to cook for you. We need to really appreciate that because we've forgotten Mm. uh, what it is when someone takes that kind of trouble. Uh, And sadly also, we take it for granted too many times. Yes, Mm. I'm going to open it to questions soon. You forgot Alice. Yeah, I have, I have thoughts. Oh, I thought your joy. I thought your joy. I thought we covered your joy with the sunflowers. I'm sorry. Uh, well, uh, yes, but I, I wanted to a- add an addendum um, as well. Because I think in households where somebody is the designated cook, for the, um, for the secondary cook to cook for them, it takes a lot of confidence. It's actually, you know, why I wrote joy, like why I wrote the joy of better mm. cooking is for my husband. Because mm. he's an excellent cook. But he kind of, you know, waits for, he, he, he needs somebody to give him permission to actually just have fun and, and let go. So I think that's also in terms of if, you, if your partner needs a bit of extra motivation, you know, food is a love language. And no matter what it is they cook for you, no matter what changes you personally would make... <laughs> <laughs> I, I, um, I just wouldn't say it at the time, you know. <laughs> but like you write a book later. about it. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and talk about it publicly. No, no, no. It's for you. I don't mean that. <laughs> Fine. 
<laughs> we have probably many home cooks here today and many people who love comfort food and comfort eating, uh, which actually is a separate thing and probably a topic in its own right, comfort eating. <laughs> but enough about me. Um, but I would actually like to ask, you know, in s- such an esteemed um, group of people on stage, I wonder if you could offer a word of advice or a provocation to the home cooks here today. My advice is keep it very simple. Keep it real, because the thing is that it should, it should connect to you. That is when the dish is the most beautiful. Don't try it for a trend or something you've seen on YouTube. All of that, most of that is fake. Uh, it, because when you cook, you're, as unique as your fingerprint, that dish that you're making is unique to you. And that's when you know that this is my dish and this is something very special. As home cooks, you have that beautiful time that you can make that special dish. So yeah, just be very proud of what you do. And I think that's really important mm. to be confident and proud. Thank you. Let's move in this direction. We'll get to you, Alice, I promise. <laughs> we should do that instead. Rasheen. Um, I think it'd be probably don't be afraid to build your pantry and use, you know, buy an array of spices, sauces, ingredients and use them, you know, like add a little bit of fish sauce to your pasta sauce, you know, like try and reuse more dry spices and go out of your comfort zone, but use what's around you and try and instead of, you know, box, you know, seasonings off into, oh, this is only for this type of recipe, you know, taste it, understand what it tastes like, you know, how that could be used in other ways. And, you know, just try and use what you have because, you know, the world is so delicious (laughs) and, you know, we have such amazing access to everything, especially in Australia. Um, So it would be, it would be sad to, you know, have, you know, a beautiful curry powder just exiled to, you know, once a month, you know, like use, use what you've got and use it, you know, skillfully or bravely, just use it. Um, I would say um, using good ingredients and letting the ingredients do the talking. So just organic produce when you can, that kind of thing, and letting those flavours sing. But also listen to your mum and um, take, <laughs> take what you can from her and um, intuition. I think we get too obsessed with measuring things out. It was really hard to write an Afghan cookbook because we don't measure things, you know. So we had to go back and force my mother to measure things. <laughs> and it wasn't natural, you know. That wasn't a natural part of the way we cook. Um, intuition is so important. Looking at things, listening to things, smelling things to know um, how your cooking's going. I think we've kind of um, sold cooking for ourselves and not for others a little bit short on this panel. And it's true. I'm, I'm a victim of it myself. I will be the least likely to cook something exciting just for me. So my suggestion is that if you are at home by yourself and you can't be, cook, can't be bothered cooking something worthwhile because it's just for you, just imagine that there are actually multiple yous. There's <laughs> present you and then there's future you. You know, leftovers are an excellent way to come home and still have comfort. It's like a gift that past you left for present (laughs) you. (laughs) It's like the gift that keeps on giving. And that is the greatest comfort of all. But not for like a week. <laughs> Two to three days. Jennifer Max. Wong. Thank you, Alice. There's my future you, my future me thanks your past you very much. Uh, we have some questions. Hi. Um, your food, your restaurants and your cookbooks obviously heavily influenced by 
each of your cultures that you're from and that representation do you feel like pressure to kind of do your heritage proud and your cultures proud yes i think all of us uh, i i'm sure i speak for all of us you know we we are true to ourselves but there is there is for me a pressure but that pressure is not to be true to uh, my culture it is to make sure that i amplify the voices of the women who never got heard mm. that is a huge pressure i carry because from the women in their graves to women who are coming after me i need to make sure that we are not dismissed and sidelined and as i have an opportunity to be in a place like this and have an audience this you know engaged in what i'm saying that i get a chance to write cookbooks i need to be speaking not just about myself i need to be speaking about all of us and this is across cultures but there is that there is a pressure definitely at least for me Yeah, I I definitely agree with that because you know um the cookbook for Ampawana came about because of that kind of strain of like that preservation of a culture and identity um that is being jeopardized in many ways and so you know there's a real balance of telling your story and not trying to kind of tell a story on mass but then at the same time understanding that there's almost this dichotomy that yeah you are trying to elevate a region and a people that have been abandoned sidelined and um had their stories told for them and about them so you know it really is a a responsibility um that i feel that i have to know myself know my ancestry know the lost stories the untold stories excavate them bring them to the fore to tell a deeper and more prescient story that other people can see themselves into um it's a responsibility but it also feels like a gift that keeps changing me as well hi um is there a dish that you like to cook that's from a culture that you wouldn't consider to be your own for me chinese uh, it's i have two recipes in my um I mean I mean generic Chinese I uh, I have Indo Chinese Calcutta Chinese is very famous we have had you know com- the Chinese community living with us from the 17th century onwards so I have so Indo Chinese we we were discussing this uh before we we came on stage uh is unique so I don't really feel this is like Indian it's not really fusion but it's kind of yeah and you feel that this is the cuisine of another people mm-hmm. but we all love it And mm. it, when I was growing up, the only restaurant you had in Calcutta was Chinese restaurants. Mm. Those recipes look delicious, by the way. You should check mm-hmm. them out. They're in the back of the book. <laughs> <laughs> it's so funny that we all hesitated so much because it's a really interesting kind of fraught time, right, for that appropriation versus appreciation. And um, I, I suppose that's perhaps why you asked the question. It's not just, uh, you know, when a friend gifts me a recipe, like, um, you know, my... my friend Johnny Aloha who grew up in Hawaii um and he's um Japanese American and uh he gifted me the recipe for taco rice which is such a great midweek <laughs> delicious recipe it's like sushi rice and then mince meat on top and then shredded ch- uh, with mince meat mixed through with Tex-Mex Yum. seasoning I'm talking you could just do old old El Paso from the supermarket you know or mix up your own spices and then shredded cheese and shredded lettuce and tomato um and that is just such a great home comfort dish um and I guess that is such a gift and a privilege that that we have this culture to share and we're sharing it far and wide but we all very much are willing to learn and and willing to take on other people's 
um, dishes and cultures and, and, and want to understand culture. And I guess that's... Thank you. Yeah. I think that's a very good Great note question. to end Thank on. You. Yes, yeah. the generosity of uh, having space for other people's cuisines and to learn from that while deeply uh, being true to your own culture as well is a lovely note to end on. I'd like to thank you all for joining us today for Home Comforts. For now, please join me in thanking this wonderful, wonderful group of women. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, please remember to subscribe and to rate our channel.